Hello and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah, and I've got a brand spanking new episode for you guys today. Let's jump right in. Well, it appears that our favorite fake heiress, Anna Sorokin, is in the news yet again. Evidently, she has cheated her attorney out of more than $152,000 in legal services, according to the latest lawsuit against her. Sophia Onkel wrote this particular article. Anna Sorokin, who poses a German heiress under the name Anna Delvey, cheated her attorney out of more than $152,000 in legal services, according to a Manhattan Supreme Court lawsuit. Sorokin hired attorney Audrey Thomas in 2020 to represent her in an immigration case and to help her appeal her criminal conviction of having defrauded an estimated $275,000 from hotels, friends, and banks. The elaborate four-year scam allowed Sorokin to live a very luxurious lifestyle amid New York's high society, which eventually led to her arrest and subsequent conviction in 2019. She was released from incarceration in 2021 and is currently under house arrest in her East Village apartment. In the complaint, Sorokin's lawyer argues that the fake heiress lied to get out of paying astronomical legal fees by filing false allegations against her to the grievance committee. The false statements by Sorokin against plaintiff's interest were made for the sole purpose of causing injury to plaintiffs and to damage plaintiff's reputation and standing in the community, according to the complaint. It is unclear what the false allegations were. The attorney did not immediately respond to the request for comment on this article, but Thomas herself is facing criminal prosecution after she was accused of stealing money from an elderly client several years ago. As a result, she was disbarred in November of last year. The disbarment was not related to the facts or circumstances that give rise to this lawsuit, said Thomas in her complaint. The lawyer also said that Sorokin was well aware of her legal troubles when they started their attorney-client relationship, adding that Anna actually told the attorney she hired her because she believed that if anyone would fight for her, I would because I know what it's like to be wrongfully accused and publicly shamed. Sorokin fired the attorney Thomas in April of 2022. She took her to court last year claiming the lawyer hadn't returned court records to help her fight her deportation case in an appeals court. Thomas is trying to get as much as she can out of being associated with me and my story, says Sorokin. Sorokin did not respond to the insider's request for comment either. (laughs) I guess we will see how this one unfolds as well. And then we're on to Elizabeth Holmes. We all know she has been convicted, but Elizabeth Holmes now has surrendered to Texas prison to begin her 11-year sentence. Oliver O'Connell and Bevan Hurley wrote this one. Elizabeth Holmes has reported to prison to begin her 11-year sentence for defrauding investors in her blood-testing Silicon Valley startup Theranos. Wearing a beige sweater, jeans, and sneakers, the 39-year-old mother of two was directed into federal prison camp in Bryan, Texas by staff from the Federal Bureau of Prisons minutes before a court-imposed deadline of 2 p.m. last Tuesday. A federal appeals court rejected her bid to remain out of prison earlier this month while she attempts to overturn her January 2022 conviction on four felony counts of fraud and conspiracy. A delay was granted to give Holmes time to sort out child care for her one-year-old son and three-month-old daughter. Holmes has originally been ordered to begin her prison sentence in April. 
Holmes spent the Memorial Day weekend with her husband, Billy Evans, and their children near their home in San Diego before she surrendered to the authorities in Texas. She has also been ordered to pay $452 million in restitution to out-of-pocket investors, including Rupert Murdoch and Betsy DeVos. Her former romantic business partner, Ramesh Sunny Balwani, began serving his own sentence of 13 years last month in Southern California. She was ordered to pay that restitution in her failed blood testing business by a judge in California earlier this month. Evidently, Rupert Murdoch was scheduled to receive about $125 million. Other donors included Henry Kissinger and the Walton family, the billionaire owners of Walmart. Holmes told the New York Times in a recent interview that she couldn't afford to pay her legal bills. She stands to earn about $1.15 and 12 cents an hour for carrying out menial tasks at Camp Bryan. The near half billion dollar sum is unlikely to ever be repaid, especially if she's going to be in prison for the next 11 years making $1 an hour, right? But evidently, the inmates of this all-female prison are looking forward to welcoming this disgraced tech entrepreneur, and they want to be her friend. Holmes, of course, is appealing her conviction and sentence and continues to plead her innocence. At Brian, the mother of two will face a grueling daily schedule to begin at 6 a.m. when inmates are woken up for meals and work. Those who fail to comply with the strict wake-up rules are subject to punishments. She's sentenced to 11 years and three months in federal prison. Under federal sentencing guidelines, prisoners must serve about 85% of their sentence before they're eligible for parole. In a Holmes case, that would be nine and a half years in prison, making her eligible for release in December of 2032. So we will continue to keep you guys posted on this one. Evidently, she has settled in and there are people taking pictures of her in the courtyard. She's already had visitation with her family. It's all very interesting, and we will keep you guys posted on this as her appeals continue to wind through the system. Then we have a couple of other interesting articles on the agenda for tonight. One is a case of a Utah mom accused of poisoning her husband with fentanyl and cocktails. Evidently, she took out $2 million in life insurance policies on him before his death. And Minnie Von Burke and Alicia Victoria Lonzo wrote this article, but a Utah woman who allegedly spiked her husband's drink with fentanyl and then wrote a children's book about grief after he died is now accused of secretly taking out nearly $2 million in life insurance policies on him. The allegations against the woman, Corey Richens, were raised in an amended court document filed in May that led to the postponement of a detention hearing originally scheduled for mid-May. Richens, 33, is charged with aggravated murder and three counts of possession of a controlled substance with intent to distribute following her husband Eric Richens' death in March of 2022. He was found unresponsive in the bedroom of their home in Comus, about 40 miles southeast of Salt Lake City, where she made him a Moscow mule to celebrate a business deal. An autopsy and a toxicology report found that he had died from a fentanyl overdose, according to probable cause statements. Prosecutors said Richen slipped five times the lethal dose of fentanyl into the cocktail. A year after his death, she published a book about grief titled 
Are you with me to create peace and comfort for children who'd lost a loved one, according to the description of her book on Amazon? She dedicated the book to her amazing husband and a wonderful father. It has since been removed for sale. The court documents that were filed last week allege that in September of 2020, Eric Richens found out his wife had obtained and spent about $250,000 for a home equity line of credit on their home. She had withdrawn at least $100,000 from his bank accounts and spent over $30,000 on his credit cards. Corey Richens is also accused of appropriating distributions made from his business for the purpose of making federal and state quarterly tax payments and not paying the taxes. The stolen tax payments totaled at least $134,346. Eric Richens confronted his wife about the money and she agreed to pay him back. The following month, in October 2020, Eric Richens consulted a divorce lawyer and an estate planning lawyer. Unbeknownst to his wife, he changed his will, formed a living trust, placed his estate under the control of his sister, Katie Richens Benson, and designated the trust as the beneficiary of his $500,000 life insurance policy, according to the filings. The filings further allege that between 2015 and 2017, Corey Richens bought at least four life insurance policies on her husband, totaling nearly $2 million. Eric Richens was unaware she had purchased the policies, and Corey also allegedly changed a separate life insurance policy that her husband had to herself as the beneficiary. The policy had initially listed Eric Richens' business partner as the beneficiary. Eric Richens was alerted to it and was able to change it back to his business partner, the filing says, but the documents also provided additional details on Corey Richens' alleged attempts to poison her husband with fentanyl pills she'd obtained from an acquaintance identified in court documents. Eric Richens' family has said that she tried to poison him multiple times. One of these attempts happened on Valentine's Day in 2022. According to the filing, Corey Richens allegedly made her husband a sandwich and sat it on the seat of his truck with a love note. Shortly after consuming the sandwich, Eric Richens broke out in hives and had difficulty breathing. Luckily, Eric found his son's EpiPen and administered it to himself and slept. Eric Richens believed he had been poisoned and told a friend he thought his wife was trying to poison him, according to the document. But despite his suspicions, he stayed in the marriage with Corey because of his children, according to a family spokesperson. In late February 2022, Corey Richens allegedly asked someone to get stronger fentanyl pills. This person stated the defendant specifically asked for some of the Michael Jackson stuff during this request, but subsequently conceded that the defendant may have made the Michael Jackson reference during her first request for fentanyl. Jackson died in 2009 at his Los Angeles home after having received a lethal dose of propofol. According to court documents, this person obtained the pills for Corey Richens. A medical examiner said that Eric Richens had five times the lethal dosage of fentanyl in his system when he died, and that it was an illicit fentanyl, not the medical grade. It is also believed he ingested the drugs orally. After his death, Corey Richens allegedly had a locksmith drill into his safe, which contained about $125,000 to $165,000 in cash. When Eric Richens' sister suggested that Corey should not touch the money, she allegedly became enraged and punched the sister in the face and neck. The documents allege that between March 9th and March 10th, after her husband's death, she told a family friend to leave more fentanyl pills in the fire pit at the home Corey Richens owned. 
prosecutors said they needed more time to provide discovery related to the new allegations in the document. Richen's attorney said they needed time to review the discovery and prepare for the hearing. The state amended the charging information and has not turned over discovery yet. Therefore, we couldn't be prepared to argue about the sufficiency of the evidence. The new hearing is scheduled for this upcoming week, and we will continue to keep you guys posted on that scary case. In the meantime, though, we have some scams to look out for. One of them is, I was in a trance. A tech executive was scammed out of $450,000 in a cool romance grift called pig butchering. Here's how it works and what to watch out for. And Sarah Lewis wrote this article. Sharia Dada had been swiping through dating apps for months before she met Ansel Mali, a purported wine trader from France on Hinge. After they chatted online for a couple of months, exchanged flirty emojis and selfies, he ended up conning her out of $450,000. I was in a trance, Dada told the Philadelphia Inquirer. I felt like I had met my person. Dada, a 37-year-old director at a multinational tech company in Philadelphia, explained that Molly convinced her to give trading crypto a go. He sent her a download link to what appeared to be the app SoFi, complete with two-factor authentication and customer service. SoFi is a legitimate provider of loans and some banking services in the U.S. and Hong Kong, but it's often imitated by scammers, according to experts. When Data later tried to withdraw her money from the app, she got a message that she had to first pay 10% as a personal tax. She contacted her brother, who is a lawyer, and with the help of a private investigator, they determined she'd been a victim of a crypto investment scam known as pig butchering. So how does this pig butchering work? The Department of Justice announced back in April that it has seized an estimated $112 million linked to pig butchering scams. The victims in pig butchering scams are referred to as pigs by the scammers because the scammers will use elaborate storylines to fatten up the victims into believing they are in a romantic or otherwise close personal relationship. Once the victim places enough trust in the scammer, the scammer brings the victim into a cryptocurrency investment scheme. The fraudster often reaches out through a dating app, social media site, or WhatsApp. They then spend a lengthy amount of time wooing the victim before encouraging them to invest in fake crypto platforms. The money the victim thinks is being invested is instead directed to addresses and accounts controlled by the scammer and their co-conspirators. The scammers also typically create a fake website or app that shows significant gains when the victim makes their initial investment to trick them into believing the scam is real and the fake cryptocurrency is a good bet. But once the victim puts a substantial amount of money in, they find they're unable to withdraw it. Sometimes the scam will continue with fraudsters asking for additional investments, taxes, or fees, promising these payments will allow them to gain access to their accounts. So what do we need to watch out for? Well, Dada worked at a high-paying job and her family was able to bail her out of debt. She still had to sell her car, look for a cheaper apartment, and contend with the emotional repercussions of the experience. Dada was fortunate to have a safety net, but many more victims of romance frauds find themselves with heavy debt and no savings to fall back on. Here's how to avoid putting yourself in a similar situation. Do your research. Look the other person up online to verify their identity. Check for any social media accounts or LinkedIn profiles that can confirm they are who they say they are. 
Watch out for love bombing. This is the term for when a suitor creates a heightened sense of emotion or declares strong feelings early in a courtship. This is a common red flag in romance scams. Get them on camera. Data told the Philadelphia Inquirer that Molly made excuses for not meeting her in person, like a business trip in San Francisco and his uncle being terminally ill. He only video chatted with her twice, both times very briefly, not letting the camera remain on his face for too long. Keep your private details private. Talking about finances too soon or asking for financial or confidential information can be a huge red flag. Do not, under any circumstances, give out your information. You could risk falling prey to identity theft as well. Be alert for get-rich-quick schemes. Be wary of anyone who recommends a trading app that supposedly delivers high profits or tells you about their own big returns. Don't click on any download links to sites or apps that send you even if they appear legitimate. As with any investment opportunity, it's incredibly important to do your own research first and not put money into something just because someone you trust recommends it. And that is very good information indeed. And one more scam to be aware of, scammers using text messages to drain bank accounts in a new ploy. Anna Werner is the author of this article. In a stark reminder of the growing threat of financial scams, Deborah Moss, the owner of a small catering business, found herself ensnared in a sophisticated bank scam that started with a seemingly harmless text message. Moss, who had dedicated over a decade to build her business, said she had finally accumulated enough savings to pursue a peaceful life in rural California, but her dreams began to shatter after she received a text message purporting to be from her bank, Chase, inquiring about an unauthorized $35 debit card charge from another state. Initially dismissing it as a minor inconvenience, Moss promptly replied. Shortly after replying to the text, she received a call from someone claiming to be a rep from Chase Bank, with the caller ID displaying the bank's name. On the other end of the line was an individual identifying herself as Miss Barbara from Chase ATM. She requested permission from Moss to issue a new debit card to resolve the alleged fraudulent charge. Moss says Miss Barbara told her she needed to verify Moss's identity and to do so, she was instructed to read the numbers from a subsequent text message over the phone. I would just repeat those numbers to her and she said, that's great. Thank you so much, Mrs. Moss, said Moss. Over the next week, Miss Barbara called Moss several times, each time saying there was a problem with the delivery of the card and each time asking Moss to verify her identity by reading back the numbers from subsequent text messages. It wasn't until Moss visited her nearest bank branch that the devastating truth emerged. A supervisor informed her that her account had been drained, leaving her life savings of nearly $160,000 completely depleted. That was all my money. It took me 12 years to get that. That was my life savings, Moss said. Her ordeal sheds light on the escalating trend of fraud and the alarming financial losses suffered by Americans who reported losses reaching a staggering $8.8 billion last year, marking a 30% surge from the previous year. The text messages asking Moss to authenticate her account were authentic and they were sent by Chase Bank as part of its two-factor authentication system designed to enhance customer security. But the scammers deceived Moss into revealing the numbers to them over the phone, enabling them to bypass security measures and transfer large sums of money from Moss's account. In just one week, they conducted six wire transfers, some as high as $48,000. 
Moss filed a police report and submitted a claim to Chase Bank, hoping to recover her stolen funds. But after five weeks of waiting, the bank denied her claim. Chase Bank appeared to fault Moss, writing to her in a letter saying, During our review, we found you did not take the appropriate step to protect your account from theft or unauthorized use. Bank officials said they would not reimburse her account, leaving her feeling devastated and betrayed. My world fell apart. My whole world fell apart, she said. You think of your bank as being someplace that you put your money so it's safe. But it's not safe. It needs to change. J.P. Morgan Chase provided a statement to CBS News in response, stating that regrettably, Miss Moss's account was compromised as a result of scammers deceiving her and obtaining her personal confidential information. Chase Bank told CBS News that bank officials had attempted to contact Moss via phone and email regarding the wire transfers at the time. Moss says she did not receive any of these messages. Chase offered the following tips for consumers to remember. Do not share personal account information such as ATM pins or passcodes. Keep in mind the bank typically does not initiate phone calls, but if you want to ensure you're speaking with the bank, call the number on the back of your card. Lastly, avoid clicking on suspicious links in texts or emails. J.P. Morgan Chase defends its commitment to combating fraud, saying in a statement, each year we invest hundreds of millions of dollars in authentication, risk models, technology, and associate client education to make it harder for scammers to trick customers. David Weber, a certified fraud examiner and forensic accountant, professor believes that Chase Bank bears a responsibility for failing Moss and neglecting to implement stronger security measures. Any way you look at it, they failed. They failed her. The bank could have required her to come in and sign the wire form in person. They left everything for her to be at risk, and now they're saying they bear no responsibility. He also said that the current two-factor authentication systems, including text messages, are insufficient in combating the increasingly sophisticated tactics employed by scammers. This happens hundreds and thousands of times a day in the U.S. using the exact same methods here. The two-factor authentication is not strong enough to protect the consumer. Threats are changing every day as scams become more sophisticated. As threats evolve, so do our methods to prevent both fraud and scams. We know we can't thwart these scams alone. It takes an all-hands-on-deck approach in partnership with law enforcement, the private sector, and government to help prevent, avoid, and prosecute these crimes. Consumers play a critical role, too, which is why we continue to educate them about the latest scams so they can spot and avoid them. Protect your personal account information, pins, passwords, and one-time passcodes. If someone contacts you and asks for this information, especially if it's someone claiming to be from your bank, do not share it with them. If you want to be sure you're talking to a legitimate representative of the company that contacted you, call the number on their official website. If you want to be sure you're talking to a legitimate representative of your bank, call the number on the back of your card or visit a branch. Never click on suspicious links in a text or email or grant anyone remote access to your phone or computer. Do not respond to phone, text, or internet requests for money or access to your computer or bank accounts. Banks will never call, text, or email you asking for you to send money to yourself or anyone else to prevent fraud. Very interesting information. We will provide all of those articles in the show notes for today. And I'm going to jump over to the main case for the day. Today, we're going to talk about Herbert Richard Baumeister, who was born April 7th. 1947 in Indianapolis, Indiana. 
He was the oldest of four born to his anesthesiologist father, Dr. Herbert Eugene Baumeister, and his mother, Elizabeth. Although he was said to have a relatively normal childhood, like many serial killers, he started acting out in early adolescence. Among other bizarre characteristics, Herb was said to often ponder what it would be like to taste human urine. He also liked to interact with dead animals and pee on his teacher's desks. Wow, right? In his early teens, his father realized that something was a little bit off about Herb. You can say that again. So he had him examined by a mental health professional. Herb was then diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia and antisocial personality disorder. But back then, there was a lot of stigma and shame with a mental health diagnosis like this, and this likely resulted in no further treatment for Herb. Instead, he was encouraged to become more involved with sports and other school activities to try to normalize his personality. This didn't work though, and Herb became more and more withdrawn. By 1965, he went on to Indiana University. He made it through only one semester before he dropped out. He returned again two years later, and that again was for a short time. For a short while in 1972, he attended Butler University, but then started to work as an adult shortly thereafter. So it was said that he had a strong work ethic, but increasingly bizarre behavior impacted his life in so many ways, obviously attributable to his untreated mental illness. Surprisingly, Herb got married in 1971 to a woman named Juliana Sater, also known as Julie. Although the two had three children, Bizarrely, Julie claimed that she had only had sex with Herb six times throughout the course of their 25-year marriage. Strangely as well, she had never seen her husband naked either. Can you imagine being married to somebody for 25 years and having sex six times and never seeing that person naked? That just seems so wild. In any case, six months into his marriage, Herb was actually institutionalized by his father for several months. Evidently, Julie had contacted him claiming that Herb needed help and was hurting and in danger to himself. But mental illness could not keep Herb down and he went on to fund the very successful Save-A-Lot thrift store chain in Indianapolis in the late 80s. His success in the thrifting business made his family pretty wealthy and everything seemed to be going well on the outside until 1994 when Herb's son found a human skeleton in the backyard. Thinking quickly, Herb assured everyone it was one of his father's skeletons from his medical practice. It was quickly stored and then reburied by Herb later, presumably in a more secure location. Can you imagine being a little kid and just playing in the backyard and finding a freaking skeleton? I cannot. In the meantime, though, police were investigating a series of disappearances of gay men. Each of the victims was similar in age, height, and weight, and each came from the Indianapolis area or very near there. The police got a lucky break when the friend of a victim came forward claiming that there was a man calling himself Brian Smart who was luring young men to a pool house. The tipster claimed that Brian Smart had actually lured his buddy 
The tipster himself had been lured back to this pool house at one point where he claimed that there was some sort of an erotic asphyxiation session that got out of hand after they had met at a local gay bar. So he believed that the same thing had happened to his friend and his friend had disappeared. Luckily, the tipster saw the suspect again and took down the license plate number where the police identified the vehicle as belonging to Herb Baumeister. When the police went to Baumeister's house and asked if they could search it, both Baumeister and his wife refused to allow the authorities to search the property, which they called Fox Hollow Farm. The 18-acre estate was located off 156th Street and the Monon Trail in Westfield, Indiana, which you may recognize as the location included in our Abigail Williams and Liberty German episode. But by June 1996, Julie was sufficiently sketched out by her husband's crazy behavior that she actually filed for divorce and allowed the police to search Fox Hollow Farm while her husband was on vacation. Police searched the property where they found 11 men buried. They were able to identify eight of these men immediately. When Herb got wind of his imminent arrest, he took off for Ontario and killed himself in the Pinery Provincial Park on Lake Huron. The police found a three-page suicide note next to him where he apologized for, quote, messing up the park, as well as for his marriage and failed business, although he did not confess to any murders in his suicide note. An additional search was conducted in December 2022, where new remains were located, as well as 20 possible additional locations that might have more human remains. The local coroner's office has since put out a public appeal for anyone missing male family members in the Indianapolis area from the mid-1980s to the mid-1990s. They want these people to undergo some DNA testing so that they can try to locate more victims of Herb Baumeister. So far, here are the known victims from Fox Hollow Farms. Johnny Lee Bayer, aged 20, Jeffrey Allen Jones, age 31, Richard Douglas Hamilton Jr., age 20, Manuel Resendez, 31, Stephen Sperlin Hale, age 28, Alan Wayne Bassard, age 28, Roger Allen Goodlett, age 33, and Michael Frederick Kiern, age 45. All of these men disappeared in the 1990s all around the Indianapolis, Indiana area. Two other men, Alan Livingston, age 27, and Jerry Williams Comer, age 34, also disappeared under similar circumstances. They were never recovered from Baumeister's property, but are still believed to be his victims nonetheless. In addition to the numerous victims found on Baumeister's estate, there are other victims that are believed to have been killed by Herb Baumeister. Some of these are attributed to what has been identified as the I-70 Strangler. This particular serial killer has never been officially identified, but Baumeister is believed as of 1999 to be the prime suspect. During this time from mid-1980 to late 1991, at least 11 young boys and adult men were killed and their bodies were dumped in Indiana and Ohio near Interstate 70. Like Baumeister's typical MO, this killer picked up his victims at gay bars around Indianapolis 
and each of these victims had also been strangled to death. Authorities believe that the killings also ended around 1991 when Herb Baumeister purchased Fox Hollow Farm, where his later victims were all discovered. The I-70 victims were Michael Sean Petrie, age 15, Maurice Allen Taylor, age 22, Delvoid Lee Baker, age 14, Michael Andrew Riley, age 22, Eric Allen Roker, age 17, Michael Allen Glenn, age 29, James Boyd Robbins Jr., 21, Stephen Lynn Elliott, 26, Clay Russell Boatman, 32, Thomas Ray Clevinger Jr., 18, and Otto Gary Becker, age 42. Most of the victims were last seen around establishments that Baumeister frequented, and many descriptions of the suspects last seen with the victims matched Baumeister. We can only speculate as to his motivations for these heinous crimes. He was undoubtedly struggling with his sexuality and the heavy weight of severe mental illness. Because he killed himself, though, we will never know the answers to these questions. Thankfully, his trail of carnage can never be resumed. And that is the end of the episode for today. Like I mentioned earlier, we will put all of the articles and the resources used for the show today into the show notes for the episode. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can shoot us an email. We're at the Podcast at gmail.com. And please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild tales. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe. Keep it real and always live your very best life. Bye.